We're um, rocking and rolling through uh, the Old Testament, and uh, we continue at some pace again this morning, and we're going to go through the whole of the book of 2 Samuel. Won't that take a long time? I hear you cry. Probably, is my honest reply. So uh, let's get going. The book of 2 Samuel is essentially split up into three uh, sections that help us think about the big picture, this overview from beginning to end. And uh, uh, we'll pick it up at the beginning and we'll come into land towards the end of David's life in, uh, well, it's only 25 to 11, according to that clock, which suits me just fine uh, this morning. Although I feel I've been up a little longer than that, uh, don't you? So here we go. There it is, David's triumphs, David's transgressions, and then finally David's troubles. Let's get underway as fast as we can, looking at David's triumphs. We're not going to say much about this this morning, partly because we looked at it uh, in part last week, but also because there are some more important things in terms of understanding the whole of David's life that we need to get to a bit later on. It was covenant and kingdom. One person. Covenant and kingdom that came together in the life of Jesus. He was the worshipper which made him the the warrior. Uh, And that's really important for us to understand in looking at the sweep of the Old Testament. And that's why the borders of Israel expanded during these early chapters of the second book of Samuel that record David's triumphs. It's why the, the kingdom was pushed further than at any other time up until then in Israel. It's why uh, so much development took place around the priesthood and the worship of the people that you can read about in the book of Chronicles, which covers a similar period of time but has a different agenda. It was particularly thinking about the worshipping life and the priesthood of the people of God. And and clearly through this time of David's triumphs, there was much going on in terms of the development, the spiritual development of the people of God. And uh, we're going to pick up David's triumphs towards the end of this particular section in chapter 7. And uh, it would help me uh, if you had it open in front of you. Then I think that you might be uh, uh, thinking about what I'm saying, even if you're not. Uh, So let's let's do that together. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. And looking a little bit before those verses that David uh, read to us some moments ago. After the king, uh, verse 1, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Good man, David. Still thinking about God. Still thinking about God's honor. Still recognizing that it wasn't quite fair that he should appear to be puffing himself up with a beautiful palace while God himself still lived in a tent. And so David comes up with quite a good idea. Not so much to demote himself, but to promote God. And uh, at least he was half right, I guess, in that regard. At least in terms of his principleness about it. And then God replies in these really important verses, verse 5. It's page 310, I think, in the Bibles in front of you. 
Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I don't need this, God says to David. It's not a bad idea to build me a house, but frankly, I don't need it. I'm the God that's always on the move. And I'm a little concerned that if you build me a house, you will kind of think that I'm stuck. You will kind of think that perhaps I can only do stuff in the house, that you can only meet me in the house. Is that idea familiar? Alive and well today. And God said, I'm a bit worried about this whole house business in case you think I'm stuck. Listen, David, I'm bigger than all of that. If I want to go in a tent and go from place to place, I can. If I want to fill the whole earth, I can do that as well because I'm God. David, don't project your inadequacies onto me. If you need a palace to tell the people how great you are, well, I just don't. And maybe that's why when David, or when Jesus came to Bethlehem, he was born in a a stable. Nothing to prove. Don't need that kind of stuff. I'm way above those kind of things. But, God says to David, verse 8, remember the covenant. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest men on the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Who's the subject of all of those sentences? God, who's the one that does the work? Who's the one that makes it happen? What had David and all the Israelites before him done to deserve that? Nothing. Covenant of grace bleeds through every moment of the Old Testament. Remember, David, remember my grace. I I did all this stuff. You might be in the palace, but I did all this stuff. I'm the one that made it happen. I'm the one that did the work. I'm the one that will give you rest from your enemies. I'm the one that will make your name great. And then it goes on, verse 10, and uh, keeping going, I will provide, I'll do this and I'll do that. And then verse 11, it begins to talk about the future. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So he will build a house. When your days are over and you rest with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. That would be Solomon, his son and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and indeed he did, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the next word? Forever. Forever. Don't miss the humongous significance of a very tiny word in comparison to all these words. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings afflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from from before you. Verse 16, let's say this together. These are absolutely crucial words. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established 
forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. You need to understand where this comes in the journey. Way back, the second Sunday in January, we looked at Abraham. And God took Abraham from noddy no place, worshipping noddy no gods, and said, come and follow me. And God said to Abraham, this is my promise. I will bless you, and I will bless your family, and your family will be a nation that will be blessed, and out of that blessed nation, I will use you to become a blessing to the ends of the earth. That was the covenant. And at almost every moment, almost every page of the Old Testament, it refers to that moment. This is what God is doing. And when they walked walked through the wilderness, they knew God had promised this. When they went into the promised land, they knew God had promised it, and so on and so forth. Even when they chose their kings, they knew God would promise it. And now we're in this moment of human triumph. And God says something more, something profoundly more. David knew he was part of this covenant. But then with those very simple words, God says something altogether different. What takes David's breath away is that added to this covenant that he'd known since his earliest days, the kingdom of blessing spoken to Abraham was going to be not just an earthly kingdom, not just earthly blessing, but what was coming was something altogether different. A heavenly kingdom and a heavenly blessing. Everything of earth is dust, and to dust it shall return, but, says God, not with you. This was a revolutionary idea in the journey. There's very little talk about the life here after up until this point. Very little understanding as God was developing what he would do with them as as a people. You're but dust. Remember, they came from the ground and God had formed them and fashioned them, breathed his life into them. You're dust and to dust you shall return. But not so with you. What you are building now, God says to David, will go on forever. What you are achieving now will matter in eternity. You are part of something that's being worked out on earth, which will find its destiny, its fulfillment in the heavens. What you are doing now will, in the end, last forever. People say, don't they, I want to be part of something that will last. I want to give myself to something that will last forever. Here it is, in the heart of the Old Testament, God is saying to David, I want you, having understood all this covenant stuff, all that we're trying to do in building this nation and blessing it, that this blessing might go to the ends of the earth, I want you to set your sights even higher. Because what's happening here on earth will find its destiny, its fulfillment in the heavens. This is resurrection, way back in the Old Testament. No wonder Jesus didn't return to dust. He couldn't. That wasn't the promise. Isn't that cool? Just me, thought so, yeah. They're tucked away. And some of these verses that we gloss over in the story are these amazing truths about what God was longing to do for his people. So, David was overwhelmed. And so should we be. And he falls down to worship. And it's that worship that David read to us some moments ago. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he goes, Who am I? This is just, 
this is amazing. I, I love the language. Is this how you deal with people, God? Is this the kind of God you are? The end of verse 19. Is this your usual way, God? Giving these massive promises and then exploding them with promises that are even great. Is, is this how you deal with men? Yes, is the rhetorical answer. Verse 22, how great you are, O sovereign Lord, there's no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And indeed, then God keeps his promises. Uh, David's victories continue in chapter 8. You can see them there. Chapter 9, because David understands so much about covenant grace, he shows tremendous covenant grace towards Mephishobeth, Mephibosheth, rather, who is Jonathan's crippled son. And if you know something about their story, you'll understand the the way David reaches out to this man in David's family, chapter 9. More victories, chapter 10, which take us to chapter 11. Things are going pretty well, wouldn't you agree? So far, so good. Chapter 11, here we go. I hope you've got it open in front of you. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Who was the king? Where should the king be at springtime? Where's David? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. When you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and when you're not where you should be, you are exceedingly vulnerable. Even if you are the guy or the girl that God has revealed the deepest parts of the covenant to. Idle hands, lazy hearts, wandering minds. Uh Uh-oh. I hope you've got it there in front as we just read some of these verses that unfold. It's a turning point in so many senses, this moment. It takes us from David's triumphs to David's transgressions. But it's a turning point in another sense, because it takes us from looking at predominantly David's public life to his private life, his public persona, the way he's ruled, the way he's been a king, a politician, and so on, has filled our gaze. And in these next few chapters, we're about to see the man behind the public image. What's, what's he like as a, as a husband? What's he like as a father? What's he like as a man when everything else is stripped away? And these chapters beg the question, who are you when no one is looking? Who are you when the front door is closed and the curtains are pulled? What are you like to live with in the mornings and at night? So who are you really when it's just you? The Bible's very honest about their portrayal of human beings. And this portrait of David should make us shudder. Follow it with me in chapter 11, uh, verse 2. One evening, David got up uh, from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Be careful what you look at. No, really careful 
about what you look at. You understand, in, in 1 John, uh, the Bible talks about the lust of the eyes. Everything goes wrong almost because of what goes in through the eyes. That's why Jesus said, if your eyes are light, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are dark, well, that's another story. You see, anything from internet pornography to shopping catalogs, anything from, I'd really, really like that, to, I can't be who I need to be without that. Why does our world bombard our eyes? Because it's very powerful what you see. Notice the people trying to help David, verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Go get that woman. And someone who's brave enough, because you can't argue with the king, isn't that the daughter, David, of? Isn't that Uriah's wife, David? And he can't hear. He's already lost the battle because of what he's seen. And his eyes have seen, so his ears are deaf. Is there someone you should be listening to just now? But because of what you've seen, you're already deaf. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. In other words, she just had a period. In other words, she wasn't pregnant. Then she went back home. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. One sin leads to another. David's broken the tenth commandment already, and the seventh commandment, and he's well on his way to sorting out the ninth and the sixth. What a great morning's work. Not bad by anybody's standards. And that's what happens. One sin always leads to another. So David sends for Uriah, and we know the story, and he really hopes that Uriah will sleep with his wife and therefore cover up his crime. Uriah is, in comparison now to David, Uriah, just a normal soldier, has all the moral integrity that David doesn't seem to have anymore. He says, I can't possibly do that. There was, a, there was a rule, a kind of unwritten code, that you didn't sleep with your wife while you were at war, for goodness sake. Well, the men were out on the battlefield. That was to shame everybody. How could you indulge in such a way when your brothers and sisters in the team were on the front line. And so Uriah, even though the king says, Uriah says, no, my honor's bigger than you. Many of us might have thought, well, if the king's saying it, bring it on. No. No, there is always someone bigger than the king, isn't there? There is always an allegiance that's higher than the highest man or woman of the land. And Uriah says, I can't do that. David's in a bit of a panic. Let's have a party, Uriah, the next night. Let's get him drunk. Maybe he'll go. He doesn't do it. How cold and calculated can you get? He writes a note, put Uriah in the front line where he will be killed, and he hands the note to Uriah to take. Was it sealed? I don't know. Would you have opened that note on the way to the battlefield with your little kettle steaming? Would you? What would you have felt when you read it? Uriah delivers the note. One sin always leads to another. 
This is not exactly the David we know, is it? Suddenly David is sending, demanding, abusing, denying David. What's happened to David? Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I bet she did. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. It can all work out on the outside for a while. It can all work out on the outside. But, what does it say? The Lord was displeased. The Lord was displeased. Men, have you ever been shopping with your wives? Liars. Is it easy to be distracted, men, while you're shopping with your wives? Liars. Story goes of one man shopping with his wife and a shapely woman came in. That's not to suggest your wife isn't shapely, but this woman was shapely. And as she walked across the store, easy to be distracted while you're shopping, his eyes followed across the store. And then she left. The wife, not even looking up, simply said, is it worth, was it worth the trouble you are now in? Now, that's a fair question, isn't it? To which the answer is probably not. You see, well, why? why? David wasn't in any trouble now, was he? Hadn't he successfully orchestrated himself out of this rather precariously difficult situation? No. You see, something else was going on that you don't find here but we know from another part of the Bible, because we know the Bible's all one story. And we know that David wrote psalms, and he wrote psalms in good times and in bad times. And David writes a psalm that describes his experience during this time. He invites Bathsheba to come and be his wife. She has a son, and for 12 whole months, for one calendar year, to the outside world, it looks as if everybody's living happily ever after. But David describes what it was like in those 12 months. He says, when I kept silent, when I kept this secret, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Mr. Happy, he is not. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I was depressed, I was emotionally stressed, I couldn't sleep at night, I couldn't get any peace during the day. That's not a happy way to live, is it? And that's where he was. Until verse 5, then I acknowledge my sin, which is a bit of poetic license to be perfectly honest. Because it was never that he then, after 12 months, went to God. It was that after 12 months, God went to him. And God went to him through the man, Nathan, who was the prophet. And we read about that in chapter 12. He never brings it to God, but God does come to him. And we know the story, maybe. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, uh, and he tells David a story. There, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. 
He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. How disgusting is that, a lamb? But nevertheless, that's what it was. Listen to the next phrase. Notice the huge irony in this. David, it was like a daughter to him. David, Bathsheba is like a daughter to me. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal from the traveller who had come. Instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over. Wow. In Leviticus, if you nicked a lamb, you did have to give four back. Okay, that's where the four comes from. Okay? Nick a lamb, give back four. David goes, I'm so disgusted with this man's behavior, let's kill him, and then he's got to give back four lambs. How he's going to do that when he's dead? No idea, but David's not thinking straight. So he says, we'll have his blood, and we'll have four lambs. Thank you very much. Your overreactions say something about you. Slip, that was cunning, wasn't it? Slip that one in there when we're least expecting it. But that's our overreactions. Say something about us. And then the judgment came. Just four words. David, you're, you're the man. You are the man. Just for a moment, jump with me to verse 13. Amazing words in verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The Levitical punishment for adultery and murder was what? Death. Death. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God was way more gracious than David. God was way more willing to forgive than David. God was way more willing to show mercy than David ever was. Kill him, make him pay. Let's have four lambs and his blood. Remember the promise, just a few verses, chapters earlier. Your kingdom of blessing will endure. Your kingdom of blessing will reach the heavens. David, what I'm doing in you and through you will find its fulfillment in heaven. How graceful is God that someone like David can be caught up in God's purpose which will end up in him being with him in heaven? Who says the gospel isn't in the Old Testament? How graceful is God that we, his people, who by our actions deserve to die, punishment of turning our back on God is, so we deserve, your sin has been taken away, you will not die, and remember the covenant. You are called to be part of something that will last forever. And so the grace of God unfolds. And all that is true. Amazingly true. There isn't anything that you've done that can stop that. If you put yourself into God's covenant love, nothing, nothing you can do that's beyond his reach. But, but, 
Notice there at the very next verse, verse 14. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Forgiveness is incredibly real and life transforming. Forgiveness from God changes you from the inside out and finds its fulfillment with God in heaven. Hallelujah. That does not mean there are no consequences for our sins. There are often consequences. There are often things we have to face and face up to because of the way we've chosen to live. And some of you know that tension even in your life today because you know the forgiveness of God, yet you know what it is to carry something of the consequence of a choice maybe that you wish you hadn't made. And what unfolds in these next chapters is quite sobering. You see, clearly there are consequences because Uriah is dead for a start, but there would be more. And David's sin led to a cascade of trouble. And in many ways, these troubles never left him until the end of his life. Look at verse 10 of this same chapter, chapter 12. You have done this, David, Nathan saying. You have opened the door for evil in your home, evil that will stay far longer than you would wish. You see, David, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. And with the sword, you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. In some ways, these are difficult verses, because we don't understand a God who would willingly bring calamity upon David, a God that's into retribution. But hold it for a moment. Let's think about the context and make sure we understand these verses right. The story that David told, that Nathan told to David, was a contrast between David's lack of mercy, David's judgment, and God's mercy, yes? So what David wouldn't do, kill him and let's have the lambs as well, what David refused to do, God willingly and generously did. It doesn't make much sense then to think that if Dave, God's going to deal with David like that, he's then going to cause his household and his cascading generations to willfully sin in order to destabilize David and his throne. So that doesn't make sense. Hold that there for a minute. On another level, it does make perfect sense that our God is sovereign and calamities that come and go are effectively all under his control. He is the one who in the end rules. He, in the end, is the one who will allow the rise and the fall. And that's how we are, I believe, to understand these verses. You see, God has set in motion, in our world, a cause and effect. 
It's a cause and effect that comes out of who God is. If you turn your back on God, you are choosing to live without him. That's the way it works. God is a pure God, a holy God. He welcomes you. He loves you. He longs to embrace you. If you turn your back on God, you go your own way. You do your own thing. Essentially, you're saying to God, I'm on my own. And God doesn't force anybody. He's given us free will. You're on your, you can choose that. I, I'm on my own. If you choose to turn away from God's covenant, there is a sense in which what happens next is your own doing. You're on your own. And David says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing here with Bathsheba. I'm going to step right outside of God's purpose for me, right outside of God's covenant. And God effectively says, you, David, you've made a choice. You've made a choice in this part of your life to live outside my purpose, my will, my promise for you. You're on your own. And I think Paul sums this up beautifully, this dynamic of how the world is made. When he says, don't be deceived, any of you. See, God cannot be mocked. This is God's world, and he can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There are often consequences. And through his transgression, David opened the door on his troubles. Chapter 12, the end of his son dies. Chapter 13, David's son Amnon rapes David's daughter Tamar. You could say what goes around comes around. Still in chapter 13, another son of David, so angry that Amnon would kill his sister Tamar, he, Absalom, kills Amnon. It's not going too well in this particular family. Absalom now has to flee for his life, and he does. He isn't reconciled to David. In fact, he comes back to Jerusalem and spends three years there. And they spend that time, father and son, avoiding each other, even though David says he longed to see Absalom. There was this rift in the family that they seemed, both men seemed unable to get over. Ever met a man like that who can't say sorry and get over it? Search me, but there's one year in the Bible. So there we go. Just teaching the Bible. I know most men aren't like that, but there it is here. Okay? He's estranged, and it's all going terribly wrong. And then we pick up the story in chapter 15. And David, verse 30 of chapter 15, has been forced to flee from his palace and the city of Jerusalem because Absalom not reconciled to David. That root of bitterness grows up. He gets so angry, he stages a coup, and he kicks David off the throne. We've moved quite a long way in a few chapters, haven't we? Remember how it began? What was the very first thing? Anyone been listening this morning? Anyone here? There's two answers, if you like, that could be okay. You could say, let me give you a hand, okay? You could say, uh, the first thing was that David wasn't doing what he should have been doing. Kings go to war in springtime, he wasn't going. Be very wary when you're not doing what you should do. You could have said, it all began with what he saw. And look at the mess we're in now. Tumbled out just a few chapters later. And look now with me in chapter, uh, 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 where is it? Chapter 50, here we go. Chapter 15, verse 30. He's walking up the Mount of Olives. And he's weeping as he goes. Anyone else you know weeped on the Mount of Olives? David's weeping for his own Sin, whose sin did Jesus weep for? Ours. Isn't it beautiful? Amazing story. Some people think the Bible's just a few books cobbled together. There he is, and he's weeping, because he's lost everything. 
His family's broken apart. He wears no crown. He has no home. Who wouldn't weep? And as I see David weeping, walking up that Mount of Olives, I can hear these verses in Galatians. God, God's not mocked. This is not a joke. God, God's not mocked. No one makes a joke out of him in the end. You reap what you sow. And his family life is in tatters. He regains the throne, if you don't know the story, with the help of some of his loyal supporters. But his family never recovers from these moments. Let me give you one more image. David is in the final days of his life. Uh, this is 1 Kings chapter 1. I have to go into the, 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 the next part of the story. I'll let you peek into 1 Kings 1 before we get there. 1 Kings 1. Final days of David's life. The cold chill of death has already filled David's body and he cannot keep himself warm. How many wives did David have? Eight. That was part of the trouble. Yeah. Honest, that was part of the trouble. You can have one wife too many. <laughs> I've got one, someone's saying. <laughs> I've got one. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, uh, more sons and daughters than you can count. And there's no one there for him. When King David was old and was well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers on him. So his servant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shumanite, unfortunate name, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But David had learned a lesson. The king had no intimate relations with her. Might be because he was on his deathbed, but give him the benefit of the doubt. But the point is, with a huge family, David dies alone. David dies alone. He was cared for by a stranger because he had made strangers out of his family. How had he done that? Well, woven through these verses, these chapters that we've been reading, we get glimpses of it. Look at David's reaction, for example, when Amnon rapes Tamar. So they were half-brother and sister, so they're both, so it's David's son rapes David's sister. And uh, 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, it says what we might expect, um, that David, when he heard about this, he was furious. He was furious. And, well, he might have been furious. So what did he do because he was so angry? Did he confront Amnon, punish him, give him a dressing down, give him a lecture? No, the Bible says he did nothing. Absolutely dilly squat, as far as we can tell. What about Tamar, his daughter who'd been raped? Does he comfort her? Does he provide for her? Does he hold her, love her, seek to restore her? No, the Bible says that Tamar had to find refuge in one of her other brother's homes. When she needed a dad, her dad did nothing. She found refuge with her brother. When Absalom, the fugitive, the family outcast, returned to Jerusalem, that incident I uh, talked about a few moments ago, what does David do for those three years when they're in the same town? Jerusalem wasn't that big. He was the king. They would have had gone out of their way to avoid each other, and it says that they didn't see each other's face, or at least Absalom didn't set his face, uh, um, uh, didn't, was not able to set his face, uh, sorry, was not able to see the face of the king. And so this picture emerges of a, of a passive father, a, a distant father. Hey, where's the guy that killed Goliath? 
Where's the guy that can fight? Why isn't he fighting for his boy and his girl? Where's the guy that could lead so well? Why isn't he leading in his family? He'd won away, but he was losing at home. And the Bible spends several chapters opening up this private man's life who won away but lost at home. What's the Bible teaching us by using these verses in 2 Samuel in that way? His parenting, parenting philosophy is revealed a little bit more in 1 Kings 1, 6. His father had never interfered, never got involved, never been close to him, talking about one of his other sons. His father, what, too busy away? Too passive at home? Solomon writes a lot about passive fathers. Maybe he learnt it from his own bitter experience. A child left to himself disgraces his mother. How did Solomon know? Maybe he was that child. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Maybe these grown men look back and say, we wish our dad had been there to help us in those moments because we made some ridiculously stupid decisions and no one loved us enough to help us in that moment of choice. Why no Psalms about David's children? Wasn't one of his eight wives worthy of a little sonnet or a little song? Was he too busy settling a city or leading a nation? Too important to bother? Too screwed up with his own guilt about Bathsheba and Uriah to shepherd and correct his own sons when they raped and murdered? So what was it? Too busy? Too important? Too guilty? It's all there in these pages. Trouble is, as we get to the end of 2 Samuel, he was just too late. Just too late. And a door closed with a mighty slam. And as he lay on his deathbed, with only a stranger for company, however beautiful, would he not have traded a lifetime of success for a few more wins at home? What do you think? What do you think? He did so much well. That's both the irony and the sadness. He united 12 tribes into a nation. He masterminded military conquests. He founded the capital city, Jerusalem. He elevated God as Lord of his people. He brought the ark into Jerusalem. He prepared for the the temple. He wrote all his poetry and psalms and worship that we've used already today as part of our coming to God. But when it came to his family, he blew it and he went AWOL. And he lost the plot. It was his greatest failure and he died alone. 